Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming to practice together on this beautiful summer evening. It um, indicates that you know that practice is essential to your life, essential to peace of mind in your life, some element of peace of mind in your life. This last weekend, I went up to Seattle. The, we study with Harada Roshi, who comes to Whidbey Island, to a Zen center there, and we go to a session with him periodically. And they're doing a lecture series to try to widen their um, outreach to more people. So I did a, a lecture at their little Zendo in Seattle on Friday night, and then all day Saturday I did a mindful eating workshop as a benefit for their Zen hospice house called Enso House on Whidbey Island. And then Sunday, they have a Sunday program like we have here where people come in and sit. <coughs> and I gave a talk that afternoon. And I had sent them a variety of um, topics for the talk. And the one they picked was, what can we do to find peace in a world of suffering? And actually, there was, there was an alternative title, What Can We Do to Bring Peace to a World of Suffering? So those two actually go together. Because we can't actually bring peace to a world of suffering unless we have found peace ourselves in a world of suffering. I also used three quotes. I'm going to give some of the talk that I gave in, or one of the talks I gave in Seattle. Uh, tonight, some parts of it. I would like to use three quotes from Dogen Zenji, the 13th century Zen master. Uh, and this is from his work, the Genjo Koan. And the Genjo Koan means the way of everyday life. So it actually implies how do we bring practice into our everyday life. And it also implies the reverse, that our everyday life is the practice of the awakened way. So how do we bring our practice into our everyday life in order to awaken in any moment, in any activity, and also how do we realize that our very life is the enlightened life? So the three, three short quotes, and each one of them could be a whole Dharma talk, from Dogen Zenji, from Genjo Koan. What the first is, the place is here, and the way leads everywhere. The place is here, and the way leads everywhere. And the second is, <coughs> the, the limits of what can be known cannot be known. The limits of what can be known cannot be known. And the third is, when the truth fills our body and mind, we realize that something is missing. <coughs> when the truth fills our body and mind, we realize that something is missing. <coughs> so we start with this world of suffering, and there is no way that we can deny that this is a world of suffering. The news pours it into our eyes and then into our, through our eyes into our hearts and minds every day. So the, on uh, the day that I did this talk, I just looked at the headlines. Uh, there were 14 major headlines, of which 13 were these, and they were negative. One was slightly positive. German man takes hostages in movie theater before being killed by police. Rescuers search rubble in East China after a tornado kills 78 and injures 500. Catastrophic conditions reported in camps as people flee Boko Haram. Nearly 200 people have died of malnutrition and illness, says Doctors Without Borders. Hundreds of firefighters in the western U.S. are battling raging wildfires amid record-setting heat waves. 100, 100 houses in one community were, de were destroyed in just a matter of a few hours. 
as you know, with 120 degrees in Yuma, Arizona, and 128 degrees this month in India, which melted the roads in India. So you can actually look on YouTube and you can see pictures of people trying to cross the road and their shoes get stuck into the road, their sandals, because the road has melted, it's so hot. The British vote to leave the European Union deals the heaviest blow to European unity since World War II. And then, of course, after that, stocks went down and so on. And now there's concern that the United Kingdom will no longer be the United Kingdom, that Wales and Northern Ireland, will, Scotland, will withdraw, and the, the, Europe, the, the um, Great Britain will be left by itself. It could be small Britain. Bitter fight over immigration policy moves from the courtroom to the campaign trail. So something that Obama hoped to accomplish before he left office with immigration reform is now stalled. And then, of course, yesterday's news or the day before's news about the bombing of the airport in, in Ankara in Turkey. So every day we awaken to more accounts of disasters and violence and terrorism, the effects of climate change, and politicians taunting and calling each other names like bullies on a playground. The Buddha said that we must study suffering, that there are three basic types of suffering. The first type is ordinary suffering. So that's the suffering of, if you have a body, you'll be in pain. You'll get sick, and you'll be in pain. And if you have a body, you will get old, and that will also create problems. Those of you who are older than about 40 know that. So there's the ordinary type of suffering, of sickness, old age, and death. I like to remind myself and tell other people that if you're older than 35, the warranty on your body ran out. Because these bodies were designed to last about 35 years. So it's not a surprise that we have problems with, with our bodies after 35. What is a surprise is that we live longer than 35. Because for hundreds of thousands of years, we didn't, usually. So there's the ordinary type of suffering, uh, which just goes along with being born into a human body and living long enough to encounter old age and disease and so on. And then there's the suffering of change. So this is the suffering of not having what we want and having what we don't want. And also, having it, it also includes having what we want and knowing that we'll lose it because of impermanence. So all of these are due to impermanence. And then there is the suffering of, of not knowing who we are. First, denying impermanence. That kind of goes with the second class of having what we want, but knowing that we're going to lose it. But then there's the suffering of not knowing who we are, who we really are. And that's the suffering that we look at directly in our practice. So the Buddha had this, the Buddha recommended studying suffering because that's what he did. So the Buddha's fundamental koan, he didn't have a koan framed as a koan, that came along later with Japanese Buddhism, but his fundamental koan was why is there suffering? And what is the cause of suffering? Because his hope, the same hope we all have, is if we can find the cause of something, then we can find the cure for it, like we've done with many diseases. So the Buddha said, study suffering. So where do we study suffering? Well, we can see suffering in the world, but we can't really see the causes of suffering. It's too complex. There's so many causes and conditions that impinge on the suffering of the world, and it just seems impossible to unravel. Like if we withdraw from Afghanistan, which was our current president's goal when he was elected, right? 
and his promise, but then it became complicated, or it was complicated. We just didn't realize how complicated it is. So if we withdraw from Afghanistan, what happens to the women and children in Afghanistan? What, what, what if, if, um, you know, if terrorists take over, if ISIS takes over, if, what will happen in Afghanistan to the people there? On the other hand, if we stay there, what happens to our young men and women who are, who are in the armed forces, where the suicide rate now is higher than the mortality from battle, from combat? So what's already happening to them? And do we continue that? Do we continue traumatic brain injuries and post-traumatic stress disorder and people committing suicide? Interestingly, the, I, we met a doctor and, uh, who's been an army doctor for many years. He's re, he just retired, and he said that the suicide, most of the suicides happen before people are deployed. Isn't that interesting? Before people are deployed. So it's not as a result of seeing battle or being in, in the trauma of being in battle conditions. There's something else going on. No, deployed to war conditions, into war. Yeah. So something's going on that we don't understand. So if we keep, if we keep that war going, we're going to destroy our young people in the armed services and, and inflict moral injury on them. That's actually one of the most devastating aspects of sending people to war, is we're teaching them to break the first precept, to kill, including killing women and children who might have suicide bombs on them. And so they come back with a very deep moral injury. Whatever their physical injuries and other injuries to their psyche are, that's a, that's a very profound injury. So do we just withdraw and let, let Afghanistan deal with itself, as some politicians suggest? These things are very complex, and mostly we don't have Patience with complexity, right? The Brexit vote proved that. If after the vote, the most common thing people Googled was, what is Brexit? In England, what is Brexit? Because people voted without having any idea of what they were voting for. So we would rather just have, we would rather have the world be simple. Like, oh yeah, Brexit is good. I don't understand why, but I like it, so I'll vote for it. A lot of people did that people who weren't informed at all about the consequences. And I heard people on the radio mourning. One man said, "My, the stock market crashed, the pound was devalued, and my elderly parents' uh, investments and savings were wiped out. I had no idea that it, when I voted to exit that that would happen. So we, we, don't, we can't stay with complexity. It's very, very difficult. We want to have things be black and white and be simple. And so then we have the three responses. So we have the, th the, the three different kinds of suffering. And then we have the three responses to suffering that the Buddha described, which are aversion, anger and aversion. So if we just get rid of ISIS, then we can have peace in the Middle East, right? Or if we could just get rid of uh, this, the problem with, carbon, with carbon, our carbon footprint, could just reverse that and just get rid of that, or if we could just close the ozone hole, whatever. If we could just um, reverse, um, you know, have cheap housing in Portland, then everybody would be happy in Portland. If we could just get rid of the inflation and housing prices in Portland. If we could just make all crops organic, get rid of food that is contaminated by pesticides. If we have this idea, we could just get rid of things then the world would be happy. We would be happy, and the world would be happy. And then our other response is clinging. Oh, uh, I, w I must have this to be happy. I must eat all organic food. One of the funny things that we do in, in the Mindful Eating Workshop is we look at what the inner perfectionist says about perfect food. So if you were eating perfectly, you were eating perfectly, so this is clinging, right? the clinging side, then you would eat, and people list what that would be. That would be organic. What else? Local. No GMO. In season. Only vegetables. 
because cows have a huge carbon footprint, right? Never processed, only fresh, right. And where would it be grown? In your backyard. Yeah, the ultimate in local. The ultimate in local is in your backyard. Right, in the richest possible soil. And it would involve no cruelty to any living beings, including plants. Oh, dear. <laughs> and it would be no work, right? So you could accomplish it and accomplish everything else. But Yes, of course. <laughs> so it would be delicious. Etc. You know the list. Now they have that list on the back of packages of food. <laughs> it's gluten free. There's no uh, no high fructose corn syrup. It's no not GMO. Etc. Etc. So that's clinging. I must have this. I, if I get this, and, and you know, the, and, and that includes somebody to love me unconditionally. Right. So if I have perfect food, if I have the perfect partner, if I have the perfect living situation if we elect the perfect president, etc., then I can be happy. Suffering will end. And then our third way of dealing with the suffering of the world is ignorance. And that's, that's essentially giving up, saying, I don't care. You know, I'm not going to vote. Uh, whatever happens, happens. I can't. I'm not in control of this. So I just I give up. Or I don't even want to hear. I don't even want to hear what's happening in the other parts of the world. I don't want to hear about all that tra tragedy. Just, it just makes me sick. So that's ignoring, pushing away, saying, "Give this, push it over somewhere else in a, in a box. Put it in a box, and I don't have to look at it or consider it." To live as an intelligent, educated human being and make decisions is not easy. Make decisions about how to live in this world. So we have the three types of suffering that the Buddha outlined, and then we have our three ways of dealing with suffering. So we also have uh, three, the three aspects of suffering, uh, which are called the marks. You know, in Buddhism, they like to number things. So there are the three marks, and the three marks are the three principles that characterize any Buddhist teaching. So one of the remarkable things about Buddhism is that it is so diverse around the world. So it's very different in Thailand than it is in the US. And it's changing, of course, here, becoming American Buddhism. And there are scholars now who study American Buddhism. So there's Chinese Buddhism, there's Thai Buddhism, there's Cambodian Buddhism, there's Korean Buddhism, there's Japanese Buddhism, and so on. European Buddhism now, which is different, different flavor. There's Thich Nhat Hanh-style Buddhism. So one of the remarkable things about Buddhism is that it's so adaptable, and that we don't have a creed that we all say, right? But we do have the three marks. So one of the things that characterizes true Buddhist teachings are the three marks. And the three marks are impermanence, truth of impermanence and the truth of no self, no fixed self, no permanent self. And that's what we look into directly in our meditation. And then the truth of a path out of suffering. So we have to, we have to really look into all of those so until we're quite convinced that of their truth. So the other characteristic of Buddhism is it doesn't say believe it because the Buddha said so. It says study it. The Buddha said study suffering. Study the causes of suffering. So not recognizing those three marks, those three fundamental truths, are the cause of suffering. So not recognizing impermanence. So I think one, I have some younger friends in Europe where I go to teach, and I think a lot, some of them are suffering very badly right now because they were born enough after World War II that they didn't live through the Great Depression. They didn't live through World War II. It's stories. They know stories. But Europe has been quite peaceful uh, since World War II, relatively speaking. And so you're born into that era. And then there's the European Union. So it looks like, wow, things are 
not only are we peaceful, but we're really working together. We have a unified currency, and now we don't have borders, and you can cross from the Netherlands into Belgium into France without anybody checking you at the borders. Fantastic compared to the way it was in my childhood. But now that's crumbling. Now the terrorists are attacking different places in Europe, and we know they'll attack more. And at the same time, they're trying to take in refugees, but they know some of those refugees are going to be the seed for terrorism, either in this generation or the next generation. A lot of the homegrown terrorists in Europe are second generation. And now the European Union may fall apart. So suddenly, uh, I see them suffering because the world that they of hope that they lived in and became comfortable in is changing. But it's due to impermanence. Nothing will last. Wonderful civilizations rose and fell repeatedly throughout human history. The great Buddhist universities in India rose and fell. Completely destroyed. You can see some stone foundations. They're completely destroyed. So if we don't accept the truth of impermanence, we're going to suffer. If I don't accept that this body is, is wearing out and that it's my knees are going to hurt and that maybe med modern medicine can't cure that, then I'm going to be continually suffering. So to accept the truth of impermanence, to look it in the eye, to experience it fully. So there's a wonderful practice of just being with impermanence looking for impermanence, looking for evidence of impermanence, until we really deeply accept this is, this is true. This is true. This is how the world is. It's, it's constant flow and change, and not in the direction we'd hoped, always. And then the truth of no self. We look at that directly, too, no fixed self. In us or anybody else. So we, we, we try to count on somebody who loves us. We try to count on the fact that they will love us forever in the same way. But we're changing and they're changing because of impermanence. Because the self is really just constructed out of bits and pieces of, of sensations, physical sensations. Right? What we see, what we hear, touches, smells, tastes, and then our thoughts and then our emotions, in a, in a background of awareness, except we're not aware. <laughs> That's the problem. So the foreground preoccupies us. All of the sensations that are changing continually, we think, oh, that's myself, and it's actually fixed. And that picture in the baby book, that was me. How do you know? Maybe somebody changed the pictures. Nothing's written on the back. How do you? I look at pictures now of my two sons when they were young, because I'm trying to sort them out to give, give them to them, you know, scan them and give them to them. And I can't remember anymore, was that Aaron or was that Noah? It's something I never thought I would ever forget. My own children. But if I didn't write on the back, I can't tell the difference, especially when they were young. So... This whole flow of our life is a flow of impermanence, and that applies to the self, too. The, the self is made up of constant change, or as Thich Nhat Hanh says, the self is made up of non-self elements. It's made up of what I'm touching right here. So this stand makes me up, makes me what I call me. And my sight of all of you blobs sitting around there, hopefully some of you are nodding, uh, this, what, I, what my visual field shows me, is makes me up. Right? So all of you, who I'm imagining are out there actually, because I'm not sure, because all I see are blobs, and then I hear a little ha-ha-ha from the blob over there. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then I say, oh, that's Alan chuckling. Right? But I don't have any direct evidence of that. I just have a sound, and I have shapes and colors that are changing. And then I say, oh, that's them. And then this is me over here, the receiver of all of that. Right? But it's just it's craziness you know, to think that, oh, that makes me a permanent me. Well, yes. I'm this thing that continues born 
continues and then dies. It's a constant flux. It's constant change. So then the path to the end of suffering, because we have to work on our own suffering before we can do anything for the world, or at least simultaneously, we have to work on our own suffering so that we can do something for the world. Because of that old algebra formula that I've told you hundreds of times, but maybe a few people haven't heard it. As the Buddha said, in order to become awakened, in order to be released from suffering ourselves, and therefore to be able to work in the world effectively so that our suffering doesn't twist what we do, we have to let go of clinging and grief for the world. Clinging to and grief for the world. That is a tall order, to let go of grief for the world. So does that mean we ignore suffering? No. But it's the algebra of if the suffering of the world makes us suffer, then there's n plus 1 suffering. There's just more suffering. So the Buddha was saying you have to let go of grief for the world. Grief and clinging are in a way the same. You have to let go of clinging to and grief for the world. Clinging to is I want the world to be this way, and grief for is I, this makes me suffer, I want to get rid of it. Kind of back to the three ways that we work with the suffering of the world. So, well, well if I let go of grief, then I won't be compassionate anymore. Right? That's kind of our thought. Oh, if I let go of grief for the world, I won't have compassion for the world. But that's not true at all. Grief and compassion are not the same. Grief and compassion are not the same. And my favorite example is if you're in a bad car accident, and the ambulance comes, and the EMTs pile out, and they come over to where you are lying there, bloody half in and out of the car, and they, and they go, oh my gosh, this is so horrible. Oh, the suffering, I can't stand it. And they start weeping. That's not going to help you, right? That's grief for the world. Compassion for the world is the EMTs are very aware that there's a lot of suffering here, but there's a job to do. So they have to let go of what might be their personal grief uh, for this situation and just do the job. And that's what you want, right? You don't want your doctor to break down crying when you come in and tell him what's wrong with you. You want him to rise to the occasion and help you out. And that's the same is true of us. We are, are compassionate hearts to recognize the suffering in the world, but we recognize that this is samsara. This is samsara. This is samsara. This is what the Buddha was talking about. Samsara is true. Samsara is the truth of how human beings and other beings live. And we just have to see it straight in the face and say, this is samsara. How am I going to work with my own suffering and then be able to work with other people's suffering in this world of samsara? How am I going to be able to do it, even a tiny bit to help heal this human world? So it starts with ourselves. We would prefer that the world changed, right, rather than us. We are really, if you look at what goes on inside yourself, uh, I'll say myself because I've looked at it a lot, what I would prefer is that all of you change so I don't have to change. So I like to get you know, complete control all over all of you so that you do exactly what I want you to do and the rest of the world does exactly what I what I think would bring me peace. Of course, Koto has another idea about how she wants me to be, and all of you, and each one of us has a different idea. And Isis has a different idea, Boko Haram has a different idea, and so on. Everybody has a different idea of how they would like the world to be so that they wouldn't have to suffer. So it's hopeless task, hopeless task. Even if you worked, worked your entire life and had tons of money you're a billionaire, like some people we know, and you got the world to be exactly like the way you wanted it to be because of impermanence would only last a millisecond. So it's a hopeless project, but we keep trying to do it. We keep trying to control other people, which just makes them suffer, right, when we try to control them. 
just guaranteed to make them suffer. So it all comes back to here. What are we going to do to end the suffering in this part of the world, this little part of the world here? So we have all kinds of over-the-counter ways to end our own suffering, right? We can go to Ben and Jerry's and get some ice cream. We can watch a movie. We can make lots of money and then buy a new car. We can find somebody to love us for a while. We can buy a big house. We, can, we have many ways of temporarily, over-the-counter ways, of ending our own suffering. But the Buddha said, we have to go to the deep cause in order to truly relieve suffering. So the deep causes are denying impermanence, not understanding who we are. And part of that is not understanding that we're interconnected, that we're made of everything else around us. And then not, being, not knowing that there's a path. So that, that really plunges people into suffering. If they don't know there's a path, if they don't know there's a way out of suffering. But we know. We have a path, a wonderful path. but we would rather other people change. So, at least when we start, we start practice, we say, okay, I do know that the person that has to change is me. So the person that we have to work, the place we have to work, the place is here and the way leads everywhere, person that we have to bring to peace is ourselves. The only person that we can change, have a hope of changing, the only person that we really can work with here and now is ourselves. So how do we bring ourselves to a place of peace in this world of suffering? That's the essential question of our practice, right? The essential question of our practice. How do we find peace in a world of suffering? We could, and then part of us says, oh, that would be selfish to be at peace in a world of suffering. No. This is the beginning. The way is here. The place is here, and the way leads everywhere. If we can be more at peace, then that peace spreads out because the way leads everywhere in all directions and in all times, including what we call past and future. So it leads up, down, in all the compass directions, and through space and time, through all of time. Now, you know, don't believe it because I said it. The Buddha said, don't believe it just because this old monk said it. Or don't believe it just because this old lady teacher said it. You have to investigate it for yourselves. We were, when we were in, in Europe in the spring, we did a um, two-day retreat with Tenzin Wangyal, the Tibetan teacher who came here last year and will come again this year, right? Yeah, come again in the fall. So he'll be talking here. So those of you who study with him, you know he has the three pills that he ha trains people with. So the three pills are inner silence, which cannot be affected by noise or sound or your own thoughts, uh, inner stillness, which is unaffected by motion, movement, and spacious mind. But interestingly, in France, he added warmth. He added warmth, which is interesting, because Buddhist practice can tend towards the impersonal. It can tend towards the wisdom side of awakening and neglect the compassion side of awakening, compassion for ourselves and others. And now, of course, the most popular part of mindfulness, the mindfulness interventions, is mindful self-compassion. So that tells us that there was there's something lacking, which is this warmth. He says, just warm up your practice a little bit. And he has various ways that he recommends doing that. So can we be present with suffering can we find a place of peace within ourselves that is warm? So it's not just neutral. Oh, I feel at peace, I feel at ease, but it's actually warm. 
So ways to warm it up are gratitude practice, loving kindness practice, which helps open our heart. In Zen, we, in the Zen in the past, in America, we've tended to emphasize the wisdom part. Okay, clarity of mind, spacious mind. Spacious, luminous mind, and I'm aware of all the liveliness, the things that arise and disappear and arise and disappear. And because they're just lively, it doesn't affect me. But that can become cool. It can become indifferent. It become cold indifference, and it can become cruelty. We don't watch it, the extreme, right? So it has to be balanced, and I think that was why Tenzin Wangyal brought that in, and also why mindful self-compassion is so popular now. Is it has to be balanced with work on the heart, the warmth, the compassion aspect of our practice, the loving-kindness aspect of our practice. So the way, the, the place is here. The place to work is here and now. So how do we find peace here and now? Because if we find it here and now, if we find clarity of mind, if we find warmth in our heart and can express that, it doesn't do any good if we don't express it and use it in the world, that clarity of mind and the kindliness, benevolence of our heart. then it spreads out from here. The way leads everywhere. So Tenzin Wangyal in, in Paris gave us this little practice during a break. I think it was an overnight break. Uh, he said, smile, smiling practice, which is actually in the little the book of 53 mindfulness tasks, how to train a wild elephant that I wrote, and in the little condensed version, version mindfulness on the go is smiling practice. So I, I thought it was nice that he recommended that. So he just said, smile at everybody you meet while you're walking around in Paris. So it's very interesting <clears throat> how people react. The only people who smile back are children. And even they're like afraid, a little bit, a lot of them are afraid. And most people either don't look at you when you see you approaching, they look down. Or if you, look, if you smile, they, they definitely look away. Like, oh wait, this is a weird person. They're smiling at me for no reason. They don't even know who I am. Maybe they're going to ask me for money or try to give me a religious tract or something, you know? The people that I noticed smiled when I was doing that practice were people who were already smiling. So you'd, uh, we would, you'd see a couple who were laughing and smiling with each other, and they look up, they see you, you smile, they smile back. So they're already smiling. And sometimes elderly people would look at you and smile, too. But the people in between, children and elderly people, were frightened, too frightened, to even receive a smile. Very interesting. But there are places you can practice that you can practice where it works better, like at the checkout counter, is a good place to practice it. And also, you know, just you just brighten the day of that person, and then that, that spreads out to all the people they have contact with. Smile, say thank you. Simple, simple things, simple things to do. So to warm up, to find peace in our heart, find clarity of mind, to let go of grief for the world, to recognize this is samsara, but to be with it with our hearts open and our minds clear. Not easy, not easy, but that's what our practice asks us to do. So Dogen Zenji's second quote. The first one is, the way, the place is here and the way leads everywhere. Then the limits of what can be known cannot be known. So what we do may seem feeble, giving a smile to somebody, or a few kind words to somebody. But actually, the, in, in Dogen Zenji's writing on the Practices of a bodhisattva, kind words, is one of the, of the four major practices of a bodhisattva, because they're free. You can give away kind words freely. To yourself, 
and to other people. So I've mentioned this before, but I don't think most of you have heard it. I think I mentioned it at the monastery. The edge of my practice right now is trying to detect my mind going sour before I say anything. So just detect it, just turning to that sour, sour place, slightly sour place. It's judgmental. So if I find myself thinking, why don't young people comb their hair anymore? <laughs> then I catch it really fast. Because usually I see somebody and then I think that, right? So I catch it, and then I flip it back to something different, which is positive, which embodies the warmth. And my current phrase is, I'm grateful that you are creating my life. I'm grateful you're in my life and creating my life, even with your messy hair. No, I don't say that. <laughs> Just, I stop. <laughs> So the positive phrase. <laughs> so it's a very interesting practice because I just, I just discover my mind turned towards the negative a lot. And I realize that's, that's a kind of constant defense in slight ways, right? And it often starts with, why, why does this person do that? <laughs> or why do people do this? Why don't they wear the kind of shoes I want them to wear? Well, who, you know? It's a ridiculous thing for your mind to say. But it says it, so you got to work with it. So that's the way I work. Detect the slight turn towards negative and turn it back towards warmth or something positive. And it's, a, it's an ongoing practice. And pretty soon my mind will, your mind's so sneaky, right? It will sneak around. And the phrase, um, I'm grateful that you are in my life and creating my life, won't work anymore. So then I'll have to find another phrase and another practice to do. Thank goodness we have all kinds of tools in, in our practice. Because the mind is so sneaky, we have to, like our mind likes novelty, we have to provide novelty to it periodically and do a different kind of practice or change it a little bit. So if we are a little bit more at peace, then the whole world is a little bit more at peace. And we cannot know the effect of our being a little bit more at peace. We can just do it. You know, seldom do we get feedback. We can't do it because we want feedback. It's great if somebody says, oh, your kind words to me eight years ago really helped me out of a difficult situation. That'd be, that'd be great, right? But we can't count on it, and it seldom happens. Sometimes teachers get notes many years later about the difference they made in a student's life. Sometimes, but not always. I mean, almost never. Um, <laughs> this is a kind of an aside, but it's related to being a teacher. My mother was an art teacher in elementary school, junior high, and then high school. And um, when I, when, when I went, go, would go home, we would be out in the community shopping and doing things. And we would sometimes meet her former students. And so w once we went into a, bit a butcher shop, this community still had a butcher shop, and we went into the butcher shop, and the, this big hulking guy behind the counter said, Mrs. Burgess, you were my art teacher in school. What? I'll give you the best cut of meat. What do you want? That <laughs> <laughs> was so sweet. You know, you could tell he, was, he remembered her, and he was so grateful, and... and so we got the best cut of meat, and we're leaving. And she turns to me, and she said, he was the worst, the most difficult student I ever had. <laughs> she, <laughs> I thought we'd never get him graduated from high school. <laughs> so we can't do it because we are expecting any kind of feedback or reward. We just have to do it in faith. This is the, the faith that our practice requires, right? That the practice works. And occasionally we'll know that, <laughs> or our, somebody will tell us that it's working for us. Like, oh, you're so much calmer than you were two years ago. <laughs> That's nice to get that. And we have to have faith in ourselves that we can do the practice. So we say this practice doesn't require much in the way of faith, but it does. It requires faith enough to begin the practice, to continue the practice when obstacles are thrown up in our path, and to believe in ourselves, in our ability to do this practice, to really see 
to the bottom of our suffering and to make a difference in the world, not to give up. To make a difference in the world, to work for peace in a world that will always be at war. Will always be at war. So we recognize the truth of suffering and yet we don't let entropy take over. We don't let suffering take over. We continue to work for peace in the world, in ourselves, in this world, and then in the world, in whatever place we are. So the last of Dogen Zenji's quotes is, something is missing. That when the truth fills our body and mind, we realize that something is missing. We have to know what is missing. What is missing is half of us. Actually, more than half of us, but let's call it half of us. So in Buddhism, we talk about the relative and the absolute, and we're totally preoccupied with the relative. What's missing is the absolute, the oneness. The ability to just be aware, to just enter bright and luminous awareness and find peace, and then bring that peace back into the relative world. So Zen practice is holding the tension of opposites. And the great opposite is the world of the relative, of our ordinary life, and struggling to practice and bring peace to the world in whatever way we can. And then the absolute, the one, the one that does not suffer, but contains endless suffering. The one that is not born and does not die and is not added to or subtracted to by anything. It has no beginning and no end. But that is hidden from us by our preoccupation with the relative world and with our thoughts about the relative world and our own suffering about the relative world. So it seems paradoxical that to in, order, in order to find peace in ourselves and do whatever we can to bring peace to the world, we have to withdraw from the world, the world as we know it, the relative world and all of our thoughts and worries and emotions about the relative world. And we have to do that right here and right now. So if you close your eyes for a moment. And go to that place that is peaceful. places here and now. And requires letting go of past and future. And entering the momentariness of this moment and this moment and this moment. So we can do it step by step. First, we become aware of our breathing. And of this body that touches, the field of tiny touches, both what we call within and without of our body, and the changes in temperature that occur with breathing in different parts of our body that are warmer or cooler. Aware of those sensations of touch, of temperature, of movement, and perhaps smell, maybe even subtle taste in our mouth. So be aware of all of those sensations that make up what we call our body. And within them, because there's a field of emptiness in which all of these sensations are arising, existing, and disappearing, within all of them there is peace. There is simply emptiness and liveliness. There is potential and the manifestation of that potential. Constantly manifesting, appearing, and disappearing back into that place of ultimate peace. And now we expand our awareness to the room. So 
all of the other bodies in this room which are sitting and breathing with hearts beating. And aware of their suffering, which we cannot know directly, but we're aware of. Our hearts open. May they be at ease. May I be at ease. May they be at ease. And then we open our awareness even wider to this room and the spaciousness in the room, and we bring that spaciousness into our mind's awareness. We make our awareness, our mind, like a very spacious room, expanding out of this room, a spaciousness that has no limits and no center. which there is infinite plenitude, infinite liveliness, sensations, thoughts, emotions arising, existing, disappearing, ultimately at peace, ultimately continuously active. Behind, within, around, above and below, all of that activity is peace. As we breathe in, it permeates our being. As we breathe out, we send it to a troubled world. If we want to find peace in a world of suffering so that we can bring peace to a world of suffering, this is where we begin. Thank you.